We are so very proud to announce that we have partnered for all of season three with Foxglove Farm. Now that's Foxglove, like the animal, like the thing you put on your hand. Like and, the witch plant. And <laughs> farm like pharmacy. So F-O-X-G-L-O-V-E. P-H-A-R-M. Go to Foxglove Farm and use offer code Missing Witches. <laughs> you aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. This is a story about a woman born into slavery who became one of the most powerful healers in the hot, mad, cruel town of Cartagena de Indias in 17th century colonial Colombia. A woman who was tried three times for witchcraft and survived, still imprisoned, while the bishop himself paid for her services. This is a story about Paula de Eguiluz, who went by the nickname Alleluia. And I want to call her that because I want to call all these witches and all of you out there by the names you choose. And I want to call her a patron saint of surviving and fucking thriving against the odds, even though the odds are stacked against you again and again. Patron saint, alleluia, of learning the game and playing it better than them and escaping with your life while the people who hunted you pay for your services. Thank you very much and alleluia. And though she was persecuted under the rubric witch, I want to own that name and call her witch. Because as Pam Grossman wrote in her delicious must-read history-slash-memoir, Waking the Witch, check out our interview with her in a previous episode, and check out her podcast, and buy this queen's book, because she wrote, More than anything, the witch is a shining and shadowy symbol of female power, and a force for subverting the status quo. No matter what form she takes, she remains an electric source of magical agitation, that we can all plug into whenever we need a high voltage charge. She is also a vessel that contains our conflicting feelings about female power, our fear of it, our desire for it, and our hope that it can and will grow stronger despite the flames that are thrown at it. Whether the witch is depicted as villainous or valorous, she is always a figure of freedom, both its loss and its gain. She is perhaps the only female archetype who is an independent operator. Virgins, whores, daughters, mothers, wives. Each of these is defined by whom she's sleeping with or not, the care that she is giving or that is given to her, or some sort of symbiotic debt that she must eventually pay. The witch owes nothing. That's what makes her dangerous. And that is what makes her divine. This episode is also about the market for good love and all the safety good love can bring. And it's about colonialism and the imposition of the Inquisition system and how that torture and story manufacturing machine was negotiated by a powerful, canny healer witch I wish I could have met. I wish I could have heard about it in her own unhindered words rather than through layers of tortured confessions and 400 years of colonial history. But let us do our best to summon her today and see if we can catch at least an echo of her voice. We are lucky to live in a time where she's been lovingly conjured by a wise writers before us. In Violent Delights, Violent Ends, Sex, Race, and Honor in Colonial Cartagena de Andias, Nicole von Germaden writes, As a historian pours through documents hundreds of years old, sometimes an almost invisible dust swirls above the surface of paper covered in hastily written notarial scrawls and whips itself into a tiny imaginary tornado 
and a fully embodied human takes shape. The written records that outline Paula de Aguiluz's life reveal her to be an astoundingly opportunistic, canny woman. Her decades of interactions with the Cartagena Holy Office over the course of three separate trials for sorcery and witchcraft have intrigued historians since the 19th century. Paula thoroughly exploited every available advantage, striving to survive and prosper against the odds of birth into slavery and the machinations of her lovers, friends, foes, adversaries, and highly suspicious Spanish inquisitors. As we begin, and now that we begin to see an outline of her tornado spinning before us, I want a detour. And if you know our podcast, you know detours and spirals are an inevitable part of the potion to give you a soundtrack. Because I wrote this episode on the road, a seven-week slow meander across Canada with our old van pulling our very old camper and our nine-month-old calling the shots on the stops. I wrote it lying in grassy parks in the prairies and in the Rocky Mountains, listening to musicians from all over the world at folk festivals whenever my baby would fall asleep. So I was listening to Beverly Glenn Copeland when I started writing about De Aguiluz, and I heard this beautiful trans man with his glowing otherworldly voice say, I do not write these songs. I listen to the frequencies that I am tuned to as we are all uniquely tuned. And when I hear the songs that come for me, I write them down. One day I woke up and wrote a song in Italian and by the end of the day, I again could not speak Italian. I heard him say, I write songs for my wife on her birthday, and one year a song came through and I realized it was about all women. The world will be healed when we know that women are our foundation, our home. Beverly Glenn Copeland is a magical conduit who, despite a decades-long career as a songwriter and performer, his earliest albums released in the 1970s earning comparisons to Joni Mitchell, he was still presenting as a woman at the time. Those albums went largely unheard. So if you feel like it, please listen to Beverly Glenn Copeland and be embraced by his warm, loving voice and transmissions from across the universe as you listen to this episode, okay? And we can imagine we are lying in a field on an island in the Bow River together while the baby sleeps. Together, let's listen to songs we've been missing and let them help call up the wisdom of these witches we've been missing. Listen and know that we stand in a stream, a long history of violence and colonialism, and of survivors and witches and warriors and peacemakers. And as you remember that we are all together, gather the strength to face it over and over again. Because to paraphrase Ipsita Roy Chakraverti, one of our goddess witches from season one, strong women are witches. They have always been hunted, and they are and will be again. And to quote a Glenn Copeland song, Onwards and Upwards. Alleluia was born into slavery and sold away from her mother, whose name was Guillomar, as a teenager. She was moved from Santo Domingo to Havana and was sold again to De Guiluz, who married her. And she began to practice as a healer in the fervent colonial port city of Cartagena de Indias. For what it's worth, Cartagena de Indias only begins to thrive as a colonial port city when Spanish settlers discovered treasures in the tombs of the Sinus indigenous peoples who buried their dead with all their riches. 
less than a hundred years later, picture a city being built of stone, still haunted by its origins in a pillaged graveyard. The largest port in the Americas and a hub for the international slave trade. From an article in Atlanta, Black Star, over 1.1 million captive Africans entered the docks at Cartagena de las Indias. The Spanish crown had the system of trafficking African souls down to a grisly science and made it their most profitable business, according to the governor of Cartagena province during the 16th century. Buyers and agents came from as far away as Calao, Peru, to the south, and Matina, Costa Rica, in the north, to get first dibs at the auction blocks. The isolated islands of Cartagena Bay, like Baru Island, served as the perfect quarantine site for these arriving ships from hell. Several levels of inspection ensued after reaching Cartagena Bay, and they were among the following. The Fondeo, the Visita de Sanidad, and the Palmeo. The last of the three was an actual measuring of the profitability of each of the enslaved's potential work output. Be they five foot seven inches in height without malady, 18 years or older, sometimes younger, they were considered to be a full pieza de India, piece of Indies, literally translated to mean one fully capable unit of work. Every soul did not constitute a full pieza. As many as three adolescents could be counted as one. We will never know even close to, much less exactly, how many ancestors passed through Cartagena. Some of the more wicked slaving ships during the inspection process would declare just over 40 souls on board, when in reality there would be over five times that number, chained to the walls below in the hold. Among the more egregious cases of contrabanding, slightly more than 40 souls were declared at customs when in reality an inconceivable 600-plus captives were on board, never to be officially recorded. Cartagena to this day remains a majority black or Afro-Colombian city. It has never had a black mayor. Few, if any, of its city council members are or consider themselves black. Blacks in Cartagena still live alongside the ruins of slaving wharves, while relics such as slave coffles from the days of holding Africans in bondage are still known to be found when walking along the beaches of Baru Island. Picture this place, and a teenage girl alone here, far from family, who by some combination of personal power, canniness, luck, education, and magic, finds freedom. Joan de Aguiluz, an important administrator in the Spanish mines, was her owner for years until he freed her. Picture this person. She had a real life of her own, at least for a while, a freed woman, a sought-after healer in Cartagena with damask skirts of purple and blue and gold braid. Her neighbors first accused her of being a witch in 1623 and she was accused and tried and punished three times between 1623 and 1636. Gather your strength, because the fight will come like waves in different shapes over and over again. The first time, Alleluia's Cuban neighbors accused her of killing a newborn by sucking on its navel, jumping out a window to avoid a blow from her master but suffering no injuries, practicing erotic magic, and a pact with the devil as a member of a witch's gathering. Paula explained these accusations as resulting from the jealousy of people who hate her because her master loves her and they see her well-dressed. 
By the time of her second arrest, she had lived in Cartagena for eight years, first as a prisoner in the tribunal's secret prison, and then as a menial servant in the hospital of the San Juan de Dios friars. While serving her penance, washing filthy linens for hospital charity cases, Paula started to arouse inquisitors' suspicions. The inquisitors arrested her for the second time in September 1632. They did not immediately reveal the charges against her, but Paula quickly assessed her vulnerable position. At this time, she described her occupation as curandera. She was a popular healer in the city of Cartagena and its surrounding regions. She worked and socialized with a number of other Afro-Caribbean women who sold love potions and taught incantations and conjurations to a large clientele of women, rich and poor, white and black. Brazil was rich with layers of traditional relationships to the earth, to unseen powers, to healing, and it ran bloody with a colonial violence that obscured those sacred sources. Max Dashu writes, the native Brazilian cultures became the most obscured. The voices of the Tupi and Tapajos and Gui were drowned out in the furious slaughter and land seizures of the 1500s and every century that followed. The colonials referred to catimbos, indigenous gatherings where people danced, singing and shaking the sacred rattles. An account from Grau Para around 1765 refers to people speaking with souls during night rituals. Angela Michaela of Marajo Island had mysterious visitors who appeared by night to speak with her from a tree. She said that the Christian God only had to do with the dead, not the living. It would be better to adore the sun or moon or time because only they should be adored as lords of the living. Native Brazilian languages, ceremonial herbalism and healing had a measurable impact on the meld of cultures that emerged in the 1600s and 1700s. The Tupinamba, with their incomparable knowledge of the medicinal rainforest plants, were known as great healers. The Tupinamba pajes blow on the painful spot sucking and spitting out the evil and infusing its cure. Most Brazilian curanderos were African, Indian, and mestizos. Many cultures contributed to the mix in colonial Brazil. West African, Tupi, and other Indian nations, Jewish and Moorish, as well as Catholic Portuguese. Many in this last category had been exiled to Brazil for practicing witchcraft or other heresies. They added pagan European customs, such as civ divination, to the blend. A sizable number of these old Christians were incompletely Christianized. They did not know Catholic doctrines, such as what the Trinity was, or even the basic prayers. Often they were skeptics who scoffed at church dogma. Or they punished statues of the saints, virgin or Jesus, when bad things happened to them. Brazilians performed Jewish and Moorish and gypsy dances. The authorities complained that they danced and formed conga lines during religious celebrations. Inquisitorial visitations began in the late 1500s. Many Muslims and Jews were forced to appear before the inquisitorial tribunal. A gypsy woman was interrogated for denying that there was a day of judgment. Brazilians lived in a panic of inquisitorial inquests. The areas most prosecuted were always those of greatest prosperity. From 1592 to 1595, there were 10 autodafi in Pernambuco and Bahia. Prisoners were whipped bloody and humiliated in the streets of Lisbon. Some got five years in the galleys. The famous Maria Gonçalves was tried in 1591. She had defied institutional church authority, saying that if the bishop had a mitre, she also had a mitre. 
And if the bishop preached from the pulpit, she also preached from the cadera, the great chair from which priestesses presided over ceremonies. Gonsalves was commonly known as Burntail. Much of her practice concerned sexual matters such as impotence and sterility. She made powders from herbs she gathered in the forest. She was accused of feeding the devil from a wound in her foot. Violante Carrera, who denounced her to the Inquisition, was herself soon arrested as a witch after being reported by an ex-lover. Luisa Pinta presided over divinatory dances, sitting on her high cadera like a throne, dressed in Angolan garb and feathered headdress. Unmarried, she was about 50, tall and heavy, with tribal marks on her cheeks. As two Angolan women sang and drummers played for hours, she danced. Luisa entered trance with great trembling, and as the winds entered her ears, she prophesied and answered questions. She laid people on the ground and leaped over them several times to cure them. Sometimes she carried a dagger in her hand and prescribed forest leaves to the sick. She untied a belt and whirled it in the air and gave emetic drinks to get rid of sorceries. We don't know where Alleluia learned her cures or her magic, but this is the community and culture and world of knowledge and power that she moved in. In Violet Delights, von Germanen also unpacks the accusations made each of the three times Eguiluz was hunted and arrested, and she goes into the details of who was accusing her and of the magic they had seen her do, or in some cases had hired her to do, and then pointed fingers at her when the magic didn't work the way they wanted, or when they wanted more than she would supply. This is a tricky fact of practicing in service to and exerting your will over unseen things and then of selling that service and asking others to participate and believe. Magic, in my limited experience, comes from a profound alchemy of making change within yourself. A powerful healer witch is a lot like a coach or a therapist or something, helping you pick up the tools and open the doors along your own path of doing the work. But in a colonial context, and we still live in one, when you are trying to survive, there will be a starving market for anything that might offer a step upward. And there will be a deadly fetishization we've seen of the colonial body that will in one moment turn to you for secrets and the next moment hunt you for selling them. Be careful out there. And work hard to be better white women who have been focused on positivity culture burning sage and going to yoga retreats, but then voting for Trump or not voting at all need a come to Jesus moment about the violence they participate in. Or better yet, why don't you come to Alleluia? And now a word from our sponsor, Foxglove Farms. It's actually just going to be a word from us talking about Foxglove yeah. Farms. <laughs> we love her so much. She's so cool. One of the things she does is every time you bar buy a bar of soap she donates a bar of soap mm -hmm. she and her children take her handmade soaps wrap them in washcloths and distribute them basically to homeless people in in her town and she told us <laughs> she has probably given away twice as many soaps as she's sold which again you know it just it oh. makes our hearts feel oh, warm go buy things from this witch yes I love her. <laughs> if you if you want to support missing witches by buying yourself a present you can do that something that we recommend yeah <laughs> so get yourself a beautiful soap get yourself some beautiful teas or better yet subscribe to those subscription boxes they come out once a month she makes them by hand everything in the boxes is 
environmentally friendly, recyclable, like we said, cruelty-free, mm. vegan, and palm like oil attuned free. to that time of the season. Yes. Mm. Oh, yes. And um, let it guide your coven. Yeah. Let it guide you. Oh, your that's practice. a great idea. To to actually like wait for the fates mm. to come and tell you what oh. your what your moment will be. So thanks again to Foxglove Farm. Please go to foxglovefarm.com. That's F O X G L O V E P H A R M and use that missing witches discount code for thirteen percent off your order. Von Germanen shows that love magic at the time concentrated on attracting a man to love you well. Those words are repeated over and over in the transcripts, and it's clear that good love, being loved well, is more than safe, satisfying sex. Though that's definitely a part of it, blessed be. Women would have had no chance of inherited wealth, especially women descended from slaves. Uh, and so retaining devotion meant some chance for stability. So the specter of good love is also of financial safety and a way to escape danger. Von Germanen also shows the uncomfortable truth that Paula fought Gertie to survive. Under torture, she pointed the finger at other brujas and was the cause of a wave of witch hunts in Cartagena. So be careful about the blame you lay witches and the fires you light. She also seems to have visited the accused and maybe helped them shape their narratives, and some of them escaped with their lives. She certainly did. And throughout the hours and days and finally years of forced confessions, she never deviated from her own version of events. She knows the Inquisitors will not rest until they hear stories of witches having sex parties with Satan, and she gives them what they want but keeps herself on the sidelines. To hear her tell it, her demon companion in craft is more of a powerful ally, an ideal partner, and a focus of intense jealousy from her love magic customers who want to deal with the devil directly. Here's some fascinating bits from Violent Delights. Paula de Aguiluz was one of the city's most skillful incarcerated negotiators. A talent she picked up as a successful free businesswoman and during her long stints as a captive in the Holy Office secret prisons. She learned a great deal from her first arrest in 1624 and applied this knowledge to her second incarceration and trial. Paula's primary defensive tactics were to accuse other women among her peer group of sorcery and pacts with the devil. After the women were arrested, Paula attempted to control their relationships with the inquisitors from her cell. For the first three days after her second arrest and imprisonment in September of 1632, Paula stayed in her cell, planning her next move. After this interlude, she asked for an audience with the Inquisitors and confessed that she had made a new pact with her demonic father, Mantellos, her companion dating back to her days in Cuba. She also immediately began, na began naming other alleged witches. Although it's difficult to understand what Mantillos really meant to Paula, whether or not he was a conscious invention or a living being who dominated her mental and spiritual world, she knew how to use her demon to manipulate the Inquisitors. She claimed Mantillos was whispering instructions to her through the window in her cell in the Holy Office, jail. In her third trial, which began in 1634, Paula was not let out of jail between her second and third trials. She revealed that Matillo scared her into going back to the juntas. She elaborated on her earlier story, saying that one day she entered the garden of the Espiritu Santo Hotel, thinking this would lift her spirits. 
Manteios appeared to her from hiding place behind a vat, poorly dressed and assuming the form of a dumenguio, or movable mannequin, similar to those used in bullfights to enrage the bulls. He frightened Paula with the fire that emanated from his entire body and threatened her that he would kill her if she did not give him her soul. In this audiencia, Paula clarified that she did not have sex with Mantillos because, as she confessed in her first trial, this act wounded her nether regions when she did it many years before in Cuba. Paula's strategy was to accuse other women and then attempt to influence their confessions by communicating with them during their incarceration in the secret prisons of the Holy Office. The fly in the ointment of Paula's maneuvers was the free mulatto surgeon, Diego Lopez, born to an enslaved mother in 1593 in Cartagena. Paula had mentioned Lopez in passing in one of her numerous confessions, leading to the surgeon's arrest and interrogation. In casually listing him with many other alleged co-conspirators, Paula underestimated Lopez's rage and desire for revenge, which were later manifested in calumnous accusations against her. In his audiences with inquisitors after his arrest and imprisonment, Lopez formulated his entire defense around the notion that Paula was the dogmatizer and master of all, the maleficio that led to crimes and irreparable damages notorious all over this city harming important people of this republic, thus directly contradicting Paula's defense tactics and carefully worded confessions. To back up his claims, when the inquisitors asked Lopez to inform them of specific examples of maleficio, he passed on several rumors that Paula had poisoned people with powders. Lopez was an untrustworthy witness, but he sensed what the inquisitors wanted to hear and whom they would target next. Given the significant number of free, relatively prosperous, and, and unattached women of African descent in Cartagena, Lopez rode the tide of disapproval of these women by accusing them of the most damning acts of poison and all of the other classic behaviors for witches. Paula was certainly vulnerable on account of her ties to white women, suspicious healing practices, and her record as a convicted witch. She definitely took part in cures that had nothing to do with the official European understanding of physical disease. Even when dealing with physical ailments, she undoubtedly used herbs and methods contrary to those Lopez learned in a Spanish hospital. Paula may have learned curing from her mother or other Africans, working within a broadly Atlantic school that drew on African, indigenous, American, and traditional Iberian healing techniques. All of these strains came together in the Caribbean and were practiced by women like her, who competed for business as curanderas and experts in love magic. It's very likely that Diego Lopez considered women healers, such as Paula, as his rivals. Despite all of this, both Diego Lopez and Paula de Aguiluz continued practicing their trades after surviving their public and painful auto da fe. Lopez moved away for a time, then regained his practice in Cartagena. Paula remained in prison, but allegedly enjoyed furlough to travel in a sedan chair, luxuriously dressed and well-paid to advise bishops and inquisitors on their medical care. Unfortunately, this is the only extant information about Paula's later life. That's all we know, and it's haunting. She remains incarcerated while Lopez gets to move away and regain his practice. But she flourishes still, and powerful men pay her well and rely on her wisdom while keeping her where they can imagine they control her. One tiny moment from the annals of accusations against her sticks with me. 
The first donna to speak against her was Magdalena de Estrada, aged 23, who came to the Inquisitors in May 1631 about Paula's ability to control men's affections, confessing that one night she had discussed the penitenciada with one of Paula's lovers, a Spanish soldier named Diego Nunez. Nunez admitted that he loved and desired Paula so much that he could not stop thinking about her day or night, even when he was with another woman. These feelings were so extreme that he feared that she had given him something to provoke his intense desire and longing. In his view, love and powerful sexual desire were wild and dangerous emotions, very likely fueled by magic. After the soldier left, Donna, Donna Magdalena, out of womanly curiosity, claimed to have questioned Paula, who lived at her house working as a servant and washerwoman at the time. Paula laughed at the Doña Magdalena's curiosity. As the two women stood on the balcony, the Donna reported that the sorceress pointed to the clear starry sky and invoked the brightest star in a conjuration mentioning demons. A girl who goes by Alleluia learns her mother's religion and healing from a mother named Gilmar who traveled in a death ship, was sold, and who survived. She's smart and learned more healing practice and more ways of getting good love and of getting white women to pay her for her skills. She is loved. And she makes some people jealous. She talks to the stars, bends her fate to her will, and under torture and threat of death, she starts a craze of witch hunts and loses control and people get hurt. But she survives, and even held in darkness, she retains a power. And so I think let's end by calling out to them, mother and daughter, our patron saints of missing witches and of survival, of pain and power. Oh, Alleluia and Gilmar, please be with our sisters and brothers and children, especially those incarcerated, especially the over 900 children separated from their parents so far this year, five more every day, who walked hopeful for a better life only to be betrayed at the U.S. border. Be with all the families and refugees fleeing climate crisis and collapsed governments following decades of capitalism's rape of the global south detained in El Paso, where Department of Homeland Security inspectors found on May 7th that more than half of the 756 immigrants being held at the El Paso facility were kept outside. Those inside were in cells, packed at five times their capacity. Government inspectors saw people standing on toilets because there was not enough room in cells. Be with us all as we face the terror of living through horrors we hoped humanity had overcome somehow. Hoped our children would only read about. Help us mourn the sickness of our present moment and then bless our rising rage. Please, Alleluia and Gilmar, bless and protect Sintoya Brown. Bless her freedom and her healing, and bless the fight to free every single human used for sex against their will. Please offer your rage and light and power to the estimated 20 to 40 million people enslaved today. Which is alive, and those who have returned to the fabric of it all, especially Alleluia and Gilmar, raise your healing tears and fearsome anger, and your knowledge of the darkness, and gather your powers. And gather your powers. 
violators and slave traders and obedient fascists, put down your shackles and come to Alleluia. Put down your shackles and come to Alleluia because the tides are turning as they are always turning. And in the immortal words of Lindy West, yes, this is a witch hunt. I am a witch and I am hunting you. We are witches and we are hunting. You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. Season 3 of the Missing Witches podcast is lovingly sponsored by Foxglove Farm. Use offer code MISSINGWITCHES for a super witchy 13% off your next order. And don't forget to subscribe to those beautiful subscription boxes coming monthly.